Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And I'm Jessica Chiba. Wow. And this is... Oeuvre Busters. Woo! Another smooth introduction. There we go. Everyone's very comfortable. It's going great so far. <laughs> so far. Five seconds uh, in. Best best recorded ever. Uh, Jessica, how are you doing? How are you holding up in the UK? Yeah, well, thank you very much. I've I've been enjoying the summertime and enjoying just working indoors, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it's been hard to leave. You can go places, but it's, I would imagine, but it's, um, it's hard to sit places comfortably anymore, which is a weird thing to say. Yeah, well, you can sit comfortably at home, I guess. (laughs) That's true. That is the one place that it's okay. So just quickly, Jessica, because this is a movie podcast, other than obviously Ron, have you seen any other really fascinating films recently? Oh, fascinating films. My goodness. Uh, you put me on the spot there. Sorry to put um, you on the spot, yeah. Oh, George, <laughs> this isn't in the script. <laughs> this is a very important part of the podcast. We have to figure out if Jessica has seen anything else worth talking or about. Or read anything <laughs> or listened to anything. <laughs> Can broaden the scope of what we're talking about. You know, I've been doing just nothing but Shakespeare for the last uh, four months or so. I I watched the live stream of the Midsummer Night's Dream that was uh, the Bridge Theatre last year. Oh. And I did go and see that live as well. And I was very interested in, in seeing how the they recorded the live stream because it was a, an interactive and an immersive theatre experience where the audience moves around and the stage pops up in different places. Wow. So oh, wow. that's the something I, I watched recently, and I have to say it's an excellent production. Really, really quite um, eye-opening and and very fun. So I recommend it if you can get your hands on it. Now they they stopped doing the live stream for for free, but uh, that was something I saw recently. It's funny how like when I was in college doing theater, if I wanted to see like I remember I had to go to the pub the library on the campus and like request the Kenneth Branagh 12th night that was like 20 years old at that point. And they would like hand me a grainy VHS tape and I had to sit (laughs) in the lab and watch it. And that was in 2001. And now in 2020, it's like, Oh, I just pull it up on the internet and it like looks pristine HD. And it's, it's a weird side effect of the, of, of both what's going on now and, and the, the digitalization of everything. 
I guess it's one of the best things that came out of the lockdown, actually, the, the access to so much theatre. Of course, it's terrible what's happened to the theatres themselves, but um, the, the amount of accessibility in, in Shakespeare yeah. recordings has been unprecedented. Yeah, yeah. it's really amazing. And some acad a lot of academic presses and uh, academic resources also, I know at least in the first couple of months of the lockdown made their, uh, a lot of their archives or the things behind paywalls accessible too. Yeah. So there was like a, a really kind of interesting moment of sharing of like information that, pr you know, two or three weeks prior was obviously not easily accessible by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, do you I know who, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's in some ways really nice community, wasn't it? Yeah. And those moments now are gone. <laughs> it's all, all over. <laughs> do you know? Do you know who directed that uh, production, by the way, of *Midsummer's Night Dream*? Uh, it was uh, it was Nicholas Heitner. Oh, okay. wow! I should look that up. I haven't watched enough. I haven't been watching enough theater, and I've just been watching Akira Kurosawa movies in lockdown. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we're we're excited to to have you on the show. Do you mind if I read your bio? Would that be yes, all right? Yes, go ahead. Um, so I'm happy to welcome Dr. Jessica Chiba to the podcast. Jessica is a Leverhulme Early Career Research Fellow at the University of Birmingham and an Honorary Research Fellow at Royal Holloway, University of London. Her primary research area interests are in Shakespeare and philosophy and Japanese translations of Shakespeare. Her upcoming monograph, Shakespeare's Ontology, looks at Shakespeare's treatment of being across his works. She's currently working on a project entitled Shakespeare's Untrans Untranslatability, analyzing words and concepts that cannot be translated in order to highlight unacknowledged cultural norms and philosophical issues in Shakespeare's works. That sounds really really fascinating it's quite long isn't it <laughs> untranslated well your bio no your bio is perfect um <laughs> but the the title yeah i was i was about midway through and i was like oh i'm not gonna get this one i'm not gonna get this word it's a weird moment i too. think we also found the perfect person to talk about this film with us absolutely so are you a so. fan of of the film in general or had you seen it a bunch i mean i imagine you'd seen it a few times before having written about it yeah i, I was uh, I am a fan of Kurosawa generally, and and when I was studying Shakespeare as a master's student, I, I did learn, and I watched all of his other Shakespeare adaptations as well. And I, I chose to write about Lan partly because it's not as written about as Kumonosujo or Throne of Blood, and mm. I and and I was watching it and also felt that in comparison to Throne of Blood, where you have this this obvious sense in which the plot really mirrors the Macbeth story, people were not as sure that Lan was an adaptation of Lear in quite so straightforward a sense. And I was frustrated while watching it that the translations were, were not really giving you the access to the amount of the script of King Lear that Kurosawa had actually used in adapting this mm. film. So that was my starting point with Lan, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting to watch it. And I sort of reviewed the play this... Uh, well, this week while getting ready to record. And, and s at least in the subtitles that I saw, and I rented the film on Amazon, I think, it, it, it's inter I spent a lot of time thinking, like, how is this being translated? You know, like, it, mm. it's, the language is, is, at least in the translation, I, they're trying to convey a lot of ideas in simple su subtitle kind of form. So it was interesting, but it was an interesting sort of exercise in thinking about, like, how something is adapted to say, okay, we're starting with this language, it's being translated, and then being brought back into English. 
Yeah, in a far but more accessible form. I think, of course, the form. translations, the subtitles were designed to for a, an average audience. That's a, a general right. public audience, and probably wasn't done by translators who knew Shakespeare. That was my feeling when I was looking at this. So specifically, if you're interested in Shakespeare, then there's a kind of frustration. But if not, then you probably wouldn't get the verbal echoes anyway. So, mm. but it does raise some interesting questions about translation, doesn't it? That. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you feel like there's a specific moment in the film, for example, where the Shakespearean language is not, let's say, translated um, and a certain kind of, let's say, um, significance is lost? Well, I'm not sure that significances are lost as such. And actually, I pointed out in the article I, I wrote that there's the verbal echoes are quite subtle. But there are, but, but when people watch Dan, they're a little bit more confused than in Throne of Blood as to how the characters transfer. I think that's mm. probably right to say mm. that in Macbeth and Throne of Blood, there's a, a similarity of the kinds of characters that are present. But in, in Ran, because the daughters become sons and you have Lady Asaji and all of these characters who don't seem to belong to the original King Lear story, if you don't hear the echoes of the kinds of words or the kinds of speeches that they might be mimicking from the, the original King Lear, it's hard to say how the energies are redistributed in the film. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, yeah. It's just interesting, too, because one of the things that um, Liam and I were talking about prior to like starting to record was how Liam was kind of... Just the idea that this, obviously, if the, the, so much is lost in the language, let's say, um, or in the... Yeah, I guess maybe in the language, if one does not see it performed, and I'm not entirely sure that I, I necessarily buy that, but I get what Liam is saying, obviously, that I'll, clearly this language is meant to be performed, it's meant to be acted out, it's meant to be mm. um, done live. So it's just an interesting kind of thing to examine, let's say, this possible divide between, again, the performances, let's say, the action, mm -hmm. and then the translatability or the untranslatability, let's say, of the language. Mm. It's I just a, like an interesting kind of fascinating question. I also believe that it has a little bit to do, well, I think it has a lot of bit to do with how you approach Shakespeare. Like, mm. I think in high school in the United States, we approached it as written literature, right? It yeah. was something you read in an, in an English class. Mm. But when I got to college and I studied theater, I feel like one of the early, you know, sort of conversations you have is like, you are not studying Shakespeare as poetry, at least mm. in the theater. You're studying it as dialogue, as language that is like beautiful, mm. And conveys an idea, but it's meant to be spoken by actors with intention yeah. to affect another person on stage. And so I yeah. think that when you learn to think of it in those terms, it uh, there's a weird cognitive dissonance in in reading it versus. I guess what I'm saying is that the most productive Shakespeare learning I did in college was when we would sit and read the entire play out loud mm. in a class or before a production. And I, I think mm. it presents interesting questions when you then watch a adaptation of it in another language mm. to think about how that, um, how, how you're, ex it's like you're experiencing something in different gradations of how it was originally written and then being adapted. And it's, it's, it's mm. just a really interesting, there's so much to talk about outside of the actual movie that we're talking about yeah. around yeah. The, the philosophical ideas. George, do you want to do a quick plot summary of Ron? Liam, I would love to do. Thank you, George. A, a quick plot summary of Ron. So Ron, 1985. 
retelling of the King Lear story, which, um, if you haven't picked up on that already, is pretty much the film. What is, are you doing? <laughs> uh, tells the tale of Lord uh, Hidetora, the leader of the Ichimonji clan, who decides to hand his throne over to his eldest son, Taro. The other two sons, Jiro and Taburo, are to fall in line and support the older brother. After the youngest son, Taburo, fails to properly flatter his father, he's banished from the kingdom and sent into exile. From there, the father discovers that his other two sons really want nothing to do with him. Um, meanwhile, Lady Keita, Taro's wife, is in the background scheming to grab power in any way she can. Um, after Taro is killed in an accident perpetuated by one of Jiro's men during this amazing fight sequence about an hour, or battle sequence about an hour into the film, um, Lady Kaida then seduces Jiro. Meanwhile, Lord Hidoro Taro, um, along with his fool and remaining loyal soldier by the name of Tango, wander around looking for shelter and food. Uh, from there, the film slowly builds to a final battle between Jiro and Saburo's men. Saburo is helped by Ayabi's army, another loyal uh, lord who's loyal to Saburo. Uh, Saburo dies um, in battle, and then Jiro and his loyal men are killed as well in this final conflagration. And uh, Lord Hidetoro dies of a broken heart and is buried. <laughs> the end. And that is a very, very... Um, bare bones plot summary. Yeah, condensed summary of a very, very um, sprawling film. Of course. Hmm. Um, are Jiro and Taro confused? Isn't Jiro the eldest son? No, it's Taro. No, oh, it's Taro. Yeah. Okay, I misremember. Oh man, I'm. So I thought I got you, George. It's, it's um, typically the oldest son, Liam, in patriarchal right. families. <laughs> no, but I thought Taro was the middle son. Maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe I'm misremembering. Uh, we'll cut all that out. It's gone. Direct. This film is directed, uh, edited, uh, directed and edited by Akira Kurosawa. It was produced by Masato Hara and Serge Silberman. Sil Silberman. Yep. Screenplay by Akira Kurosawa, Hideo Oguni, and Masato Ide. And cinematography by three people, which I thought was interesting: Taiko Sato, Masaharu Uida, and Azakazu Nakai. Um, the cast is an um, amazing cast. Uh, Tatsuya Nakadai as Hidetora, who's in a, 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 a multitude, a bunch of uh, Kurosawa's films, including going back, I think, all the way to Yojimbo. Uh, Akira Tarao as Taro, Jinpachi Nizu as Jiro, Daisuke Ryu as Saburo, Miyako Harada as Lady Kaide, and Yoshiko Miya. Azaki as Lady Suye, Mansai Numura as Surumaru, the, the blind sibling to Lady Suye, which I think is one of the most fascinating parts of this film. Um, and Hisashashi Igawa as Kurogane, and Peter as Koyami, um, who plays the fool. Uh, this movie received a, a ton of award nominations. Um, it was not nominated for, as I understand it, the Japanese Academy Awards, and there was an interesting story in the Sturik Albraith mm -hmm. book that the reason it wasn't is because Kurosawa refused to attend the premiere, which I, I mean, who knows if that's <laughs> true or not, but it's kind of a fun piece of gossip. Um, it's a retelling of Lear and the story of Moro Motonari, a feudal lord with three excellent sons during the Sengoku period. It seems as though Ron is an inversion of this story, as I understand it. It's the most expensive Japanese film ever made. It's a French co-production. Uh, Toho and the wouldn't couldn't would not finance the film in, entirely, so they agreed to distribute it. As I understand it, um, interesting thing about later Kurosawa that we haven't gotten into because he hasn't started doing this where we are in our chronology. Uh, chronology. He's shot with three cameras simultaneously, which is something he did mm -hmm. a lot more later in his career, um, and. 
to, to bring it back to our main subject, which is the relationship between uh, Kurosawa and Mifune. Mifune was the original sort of descriptions for Hidetora in this film, but apparently he was too expensive to, ah. they wouldn't, this producers would not, who knows if that's true, but that's the story. Um, apparently the film is a parable about the post Hiroshima nuclear, Hiroshima nuclear age, which I thought was interesting. And uh, sadly, Kurosawa's wife passed away while shooting the film and as well as his longtime sound recordist who passed mm. away making the movie. Um, so this is some interesting little tidbits. Jessica, uh, what do you think of this film? Do you like it? Or where do you, what's your impressions of it? I, I admire this film immensely, actually. It, it's a film that really left me thinking a lot about, well, in itself, it's a masterpiece. And also as an adaptation of King Lear, I think of it as a masterpiece as well. And it's a masterpiece, not just in its in its linguistic and cinematographic sense, but also because of the the way it affects you on a on a different kind of level. I think I, I was profoundly moved by this film, and I think it, it was different to watching Throne of Blood, for instance, because of the way that that Kurosawa uses color. Mm -hmm. That was my feeling about it. Yeah, this is the first color film that we've looked at of Kurosawa's. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to that point. We are jumping ahead significantly. This film was made, I believe, in 19... Shot in, in 1982, um, which we... The last film we talked about, I think, was... Uh, we're about to talk about Rashomon. So we're doing almost a 30-something year jump forward. And I think at first I was like, oh, I wish, you know, it'd be great to tackle these films from beginning to end. But I think there's really something interesting in jumping forward and then thinking about that as we go forward uh, from Rashomon. I think this movie is like unbelievably profound. Uh, it, and I, you know, the, I've seen this film three times and the second time, which was in 2010 was at film forum in New York city for one of the re-releases. I got like the chance to see it on a 35 millimeter print remastered and and that experience of it i think i'm so happy i having now watched it again 10 years later because i don't it is truly one of the like great pieces of art of the cinema of at least in the of the modern cinema in terms of being a film that needs to be on the big screen it it inspires a kind of like reverence in me or a silence in me I, it ends and i i don't want to talk to anyone i kind of just want to sit there and which is a hard thing to do when you're watching in your like tv in your house at, on a monday afternoon but I, I yeah i found it i found it like creating a need for silence or space which i, I think is a really amazing achievement of a film and um, I also think of it as kind of an interesting subversion of a blockbuster in that it feels like a movie with guns and swords and horses and great sort of characters um, fighting in, a, in these massive battles. But it also feels like a profoundly personal statement by the director himself. So I just I yeah, I, I think it's an amazing, amazing movie. George. Yeah, no, um, I second everything both of you have said. Um, a couple of things to piggyback just exactly off of what you just said, Liam, though, about it also, like the autobiographical implications of this film. Like, I cannot help, obviously, but think about it as a film that Kurosawa can only make um, in his older age, um, which a lot of people obviously also say about the the role of Lear as well, right? That it's this kind of, like, impossible like role to play um, unless you're obviously somebody of advanced age. So I, was, I could not help but constantly think about it in relationship to, again, Kurosawa's own life, um, especially also in relationship to 
his, I mean, especially in this film, right, like this very frankly pessimistic worldview that in the earlier films that we've seen is there, it exists, but there's, and again, he's made so many films and it's it's hard to just kind of isolate a one film and say like this speaks to like in his entire world vision. Right. Um, but there, a lot of those earlier films are so much more humane or are so much more are kinder to their They're characters yeah. and to like their worldviews. And in this film, obviously, and as in Lear, as in the original Lear, there's very little hope for redemption or possibility of redemption. And it might be also interesting to kind of talk about that as well um, in terms of, let's say, the possibilities for redemption if this film poses any, especially at the last shot, which is a really kind of like beautiful and very powerful, but very also like enigmatic shot. Um, but yeah, this film is just fucking amazing. This is such a, like, it's such an <laughs> Yeah, amazing, I don't want to like take away a, from the pleasure of watching it. It's a wonderfully pleasurable movie to experience. It was one of those things where I'm watching it, and also we should definitely talk about the color palette, which Jessica raised as well, because he does such an amazing job of using color in this film in such a variety of ways, both like in striking, strikingly beautiful ways, but also in other ways to like show what kind of a hellscape this world is. But I was watching this film and I was like, this film's amazing. And about halfway through that battle sequence, the first one, I was I was just like I completely again like transported away to like my original the original time I watched this film and thinking like this is what cinema is like. This is what it should be like. And how just incredibly powerful that like 15 minute minute battle sequence is and the way in which Taro just like dies in that way, which like totally completely unexpected. And as soon as he's shot, like we fall back into the diegetic sound. It's just such a great film. Um, I can't. I wanted to speak to that point a little bit. Of that as kind of being the inversion of the the blockbusters. That in any other film, it, it would be meticulously sound designed and crafted. And instead, the music that I forget what the music is that plays over it, but it. It's so unbelievably powerful with just the images and the score. And there's something deeply strange about some of the score in the early part of the film. The opening of the film, the first, let's say, like that mm -hmm. first sort of ceremonial scene when he declares his intentions, I think is one of the great kind of like strange moments in movies because you know that something is wrong and no one's talking about it. And it's, it's just very fascinating to me. George, to your point really quickly about uh, the autobiographical nature of it in um the galbraith book he talks about in the chapter on iran he talks about the fact that there's there's the suggestion has been made that hidatora sort of wandering in the woods is a is a great way to think about kurosawa in his later career when he couldn't find a place to make his films when he felt uh, outside yeah. of the japanese studio system that he sort of had like for lack of a better word aged out of being yeah um relevant to the to the this the cinema of japan at the time and and this film kind of being his like this and kajimusha being his sort of return to that kind of uh that that world to a certain extent he because he he tried to take his life in 1971 mm -hmm. and i think this is only like the third or fourth film that he made after that incident because i think of like the struggle obviously of like making films anymore right i think this is only like the third or fourth film so it's again it's just this really kind of interesting parable um yeah for his own struggles as you just said liam and kind of like actually making right. film and being an uh -huh. artist being the kind of artist that he wanted to be and interestingly in in the book he talks about how one of his frustrations with lear and i think that this comes back to the uh, the challenge of lear is 
at least for Kurosawa, he didn't understand why Lear was the way he was, so he wanted to give Lear a backstory, which is yeah, such that's a compelling... challenge, isn't it, for a lot of people, I think. I, I rarely come across any adaptations of Lear in film or in novel form that doesn't deal somehow with how did Lear come to be the way he is. And it's not something that Shakespeare ever really gives us, except when he says at the very end that that the time was when with my biting falchion I could have made the fellow skip. He says that when, when he says he could have saved Cordelia and you get this image of him as, as having been maybe a very powerful warrior in his past, but you don't know how it is his daughters become the way they are. Mm -hmm. um, just as you don't really know. I, yeah, I, I think that that's one of the key things in a lot of Lear criticism. And there's, uh, for instance, Jane Smiley's Thousand Acres famously deals with that ah. question as well. How come his daughters treat him the way they do? And I think that Kurosawa had that same question in his mind. Yeah, it adds, there's this feeling in the film that I think is, I think about this film a lot when I think about like when, when we talk about like what a tragedy is, at least a tragedy in the in the theatrical sense, there's this feeling to me in this film of like utter hopelessness that obviously manifests in like concrete ways later in the film. I think the the scene after um, Saboru dies, where they're where the when Lear dies, where the fool and um, who's the the loyal the Kent character in this Tanya, yeah, yeah yeah are is sort of based on they're having this conversation about like, what are the gods doing? Right. But early in the oh, film, yeah, it manifests yeah. as this kind of like moment of when they're, when they're sitting around together and Lear decides he's going to divide the kingdom up and the, the two other gentlemen are there. You have that moment of like, what is it, It's, it's a movie that you really lean into. I know this sounds strange, but it made me think a lot about 2001, a space odyssey in the uh -huh. early moments, this kind of like, landscape that is forbidding and harsh but beautiful and you don't understand the actions of the characters and but the film gives you moments of understanding that Hidatora is a is a warlord and has you know a violent history and that is kind of compacted with the fact that the film is as i understand it um, takes is 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 inspired by the Sengoku period in Japan, where there's all this civil war and all these sort of maybe where the title Ran comes out of is the idea of turmoil, which I think is an interesting. The title is so profound and interesting in regards to that. It just feels from the beginning of this film something is wrong. Yeah, I, you bring out a really interesting point about all of those forbidding landscapes uh, that I thought a lot about as well. That. It's very uncharacteristic, isn't it, for Kurosawa to use such long shots in his films. Mm. And there's something about this film right from the beginning that gives you a sense of the puny nature of human ambition uh -huh. at the same time as showing this kind of mixed upness that, that there is the turmoil, but for some reason it doesn't really affect the beauty of the natural world that surrounds it. Absolutely. And there's an interesting... There, one thing I don't know if you guys notice this as well, but every time there's a close-up in this film, I was a little bit like, whoa. Like, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a few close-ups, there's not that many, and then there is a moment towards the end where Lear and his fool, um, I guess Hidetora and the fool, Koyami, are, are, are walking, I believe, through the ruins of a castle. And there's the first, what I think is the only moment in the film that feels like a traditional shot, reverse shot kind of pattern. And it's so out of 
tune with the rest of the film, and not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that makes you think about the style of the film as being very, very, very specific to the movie. Like, this is one of those films, and I think this is true with a lot of Kurosawa, but this one in particular, it's a great movie that teaches you how to watch it while you're watching it. Mm. So by the end, you're on, like, a different level of, of understanding of what you're seeing, and I think that, that the long shot style, the having the characters walk into frame, which is such a theatrical advice, uh, a theatrical um, technique as opposed to cut, shot, shot, he's really creating like a, at times a proscenium style for you to watch the action play out, which I think is very compelling. Yeah, um, I think the, the the natural stuff. Going back to that kind of um, that kind of question. Yeah, it's 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 there from the very beginning. I mean, I love those shots you you get a couple of them i think earlier on not so many later but where the camera just cuts to these clouds and the sky and yeah and again it suggests this kind of again metaphysical well it suggests also kind of a metaphysical eye i think or like a godlike eye looking down on the action and whatnot but um yeah it also suggests a certain kind of um how to put it kind of like a a, uh, a disconnect between, as Jessica said, like the beauty of the natural landscape and like the hellish world of like humanity. Um, and I never, I never, I didn't quite think about it that way in the sense of like thinking about, oh, is is the film then trying to suggest something in in that kind of way, right? That it's like that there's like what's wrong with like the natural world is like the human, and um, we are the ones that are obviously kind of you know, like... Cause the problems. Up. Yeah, it reminds me, actually, now that we're thinking about it, it reminds me a little bit of, like, certain moments in Malick's Thin Red Line. Mm. Like the beauty sort of juxtaposed with the horrors of war. With the horrors of war, yeah. Right. And just also a bit about, like, kind of, again, the meaning meaninglessness of human endeavors in relationship to, like, the size and grandeur and scope of the natural world. Well, there is definitely the kind of Buddhist undertone that goes on there, doesn't isn't there? That that if Kurosawa had chosen to to shoot those incredible castles, by the way, that he got their sets in an impressive way to to show these kinds of turmoils as actually mm. central to the film, then it would have given a very different impression, I think, because whenever the castles appear, unless the people are actually close to it, it tends to be an extreme long shot, and. Mm. And for a Sengoku period kind of film, I'm always quite impressed by the fact that there doesn't seem to be anything around. These events seem to be happening just on their own in this unspoken place. It's just between the family. It's meant to be a kind of Sengoku period, but you don't have any inclination of any other real warlords having any castles. You know, they're there. Apparently there are borders and, you know, Saburo goes off and he he gets the support mm. of near nearby warlords and that sort of thing. But you don't get the impression of them being part of the landscape. It's mm -hmm. not a landscape that's filled with human activity in that kind of way. So it's less impressive in some ways and more impressive in other ways. I think it, 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 that's an interesting thing to think about the sort of like theatricality of it because we're all so used to thinking um, film is so, so obvious, especially like um, I think American film, but European film and, and most world film is almost always synonymous with a kind of realism like it takes place in a in a time and a place and those are important to understanding the kind of um you know milieu and an environment and the whatever the film might be about but this film is so divorced from that there is this feeling of it, it almost 
it almost gives the film this kind of allegorical or parable kind of quality, which I feel like is very theatrical and, and speaks to the Shakespeare elements of it. When you see Shakespeare, you know, the joke of Shakespeare being done on the moon or, or wherever the case might be, there, there's, a, there's a, a decision here that it feels as though he's saying, like, it makes the film very universal. Yes, it raises it to the level of myth almost in certain ways or in certain aspects. Maybe not universal. Well, I mean, yes, or the, to the degree to which, let's say, all myths are like attempt to universalize certain, I guess, um, elements of the human condition. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely, I, th I think, does exactly that. What do you guys think? What do you think the significance of changing the daughters to sons is in terms of what it ha what it that it does to the meaning of the film? Oh, that's a difficult question, isn't it? Of course, one of the things that that Kurosawa was trying to do was to to reference that story. I think you already mentioned of Mori Motonari, the warlord, and his three sons, and the parable of the three arrows that he brings. But what if that had gone terribly wrong? And one of the sons had actually just broken the arrows. I suppose there was no chance that he could have turned the warlords or the warlords' sons into daughters because it is a patriarchal kind of world that he's depicting. It does make a huge difference, though, doesn't it? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, too. Well, I... The thing that I think that makes this movie, or one of the many things that I think makes the film work really well, is that it then gives us a character like Lady Suye and Lady Kaide, who, you know, I, I think of this film as a, tra a tragedy in a certain sense, because I think it, it, it has all the bearing, some of the bearings of a tragedy, but it also goes extra lengths, I think, to make every character both justified and in incredibly complicated. And, and so I don't, I don't feel a catharsis or the, a traditional catharsis in watching this movie because I think everyone is wrong and right at the same time. I, I feel very conflicted. And I think that the decision to change the daughters to sons, at least for me, and then introduce these really interesting female characters that are not in the leer in, a tr in, this, in the same traditional sense makes it a more complicated story mm. than leer. And therefore a little more human. Well, I always felt about Leah that it was similarly quite difficult to judge whether there was anybody who was right in the end of the, the play. Victorian critics always thought of Cordelia as a kind of angel, but she's actually quite complicated, isn't she? Because she mm -hmm. doesn't have the kind of incredible love and obedience that she says she has by disobeying Leah at the beginning. And there is something that's picked up. I, this, what, this is one of the reasons I think of uh, Kurosawa's film as a, an incredibly good adaptation of Lear. It keeps those complexities. It doesn't reduce the, the play into something that's more palatable or that has an obvious catharsis at the end. I think that as well, though, I, I forgot to mention that maybe one of the reasons that the, the daughters are changed into sons is because he gets rid of the Gloucester subplot. And ah. it allows him to incorporate some of the energy of Edgar and and um, Edmund into the into the sons and maybe into the women as well. There's something going on there. I think it, it's a it's a way of incorporating rather than getting rid of a, a part of the play. Huh. Yeah. Well, Lady Kaeda is definitely like an Edmund-like figure in the in the bat and like scheming mm. and the kind of manipulating from behind the scenes, behind the scenes sort of. 
I mean, that's the, that that was like the analogical kind of connection that I sort of made. Mm, but of course, Jiro also has something of Edmund about him because he's got this sure, yeah. this sickness about primogeniture, especially, and he actually gets pretty much uh, Edmund's speech on on why is it that that just because I was born fourteen moons short of a brother that that he gets to have all of the land. So there's yeah. something about that legitimacy question, although he's not illegitimate in that sense. He there there is still that that feeling of anger and resentment that Edmund has that's transferred to the the brothers instead. Is it also a question of love in the sense that there's a critique here of, let's say, the difficulty perhaps that men or fathers and sons have more so, let's say, than fathers and daughters to express, let's say, love or affection or a certain kind of um, loyalty that is not simply about these really strict and traditional forms of patriarchal lineage. Like you can be a good son if you're a good warrior, but there's certain mm. ways in which let's say that, you know, disobeying your father, even though it's done in a sort of loving way, obviously, or kind of because one cannot, like how can one kind of already express something that is already so obvious or so, or so clear um, that, yeah, that it's also like an attempt to critique that those kind of forms of masculinity perhaps. You know, one thing I, I think about in 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 this in this decision to switch the the daughters to sons is does the film and this sort of speaks maybe to your point, George, is that it then becomes a critique of patriarchy a little bit in that like, you know, there's something incredibly potent and clear, but in a in a really powerful way about the kind of father figure lost in the wilderness. Uh, unable to understand the decisions that he's made, um, and uh, but also too proud to really reckon with his own the own like decisions he's made to destroy his legacy to some extent. I also or just want... the impossibility. Sorry, just the impossibility. No. I think of like recognizing love or recognizing a certain kind of loyalty that is not in any sort of way again bound to these traditional yes. um, modes of belonging or. Uh, familial fealty so on like a simple level you're talking a little bit about like a, an affection or a love between men yeah yeah, yeah or we're fathers and sons it's also i should also by the way say that it was just quickly and i, I did not do a, any justice to it at all but it was trying to quickly reread this uh really long stanley cavell um oh yes uh, fantastic yeah. the discerning yeah. knowledge piece yes yeah or the avoidance of love yeah yes. on uh, Lear, and there's just this really powerful moment in it. I'll just look like quickly read it, and we don't have to comment on it because it's really deep and dense. But he writes, um, I do not wish to suggest that the avoidance of love and avoidance for a particular kind of love are alternative hypotheses about this play. On the contrary, they seem to me to interpret one another. Avoidance of love is always or always begins as an avoidance of a particular kind of love. Men do not just naturally not love, they learn not to. And their lives begin by having to accept under the name of love whatever closeness is offered and by then having to forego its object. Um, and it goes on from there. But I just remember also thinking about, like, again, like one of the things that this film is really about is about the folly of certain kind of societal institutions, whether they be patriarchal or warlike or... Um, proprietary to some extent. Proprietary, yeah. Critique of, like royalty whatever the case might be i mean i can i couldn't help but think also like again this is a film that is attempting to critique those kind of 
structures and what they obviously do to individuals, right? Like they dehumanize us, they turn, they turn us into monsters, they turn us into beasts. And that again goes back to this question that like here we actually have a Lear who is, um, is, is both like way more monstrous, but also in certain ways like way more human because we know where the motivations are coming from. It's interesting that you say about the, the critique of patriarchy. I think you're right about that. And actually, consequently, I was reading that Cavell piece only the other day, so we're on the same uh, wavelength yeah. there. There is there is something about the, the critique of patriarchy involved in making the, the daughters into sons. And I think that it has something to do with the way that that um, Saburo tells his father why this doesn't work. You know, he's asked mm. to give, uh, to, to flatter his father, and he says that it's this is a, a horrible world, a world where we have to fight every day in, in order to, to keep our power. And he essentially says that this isn't the kind of world in which you can express love for one another. And in some ways, I think that doubles as a critique of his father and the kind of world he's created. He might be a powerful warlord, but he's not the sort of person who's created a, the kind of world in which his sons could express love in that sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, totally, exactly. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes I was reading a little bit about interpretations of the film and what it has to say about like generational change, so to speak. Mm. And there seems to be this... I don't know how... Uh, there seems to be this persistence or insistence on the idea that the children or the people of the younger generation, let's say the Lady Kai days, and they're, they're ruthless and cruel and manipulative in, in opposition to their parents being like, you know, not quite as ruthless and not quite as terrible. And I don't read the film that way. I read the film as like, I, I think that the key to some of these thoughts are in the Lady Kai days character in that on a superficial level, she's kind of the like the, the the chaos agent, the person that wants to destroy everything. But every one of her grievances with the family are justified yeah. by the horrible treatment of her family by the like the main character of the film. So there's a certain amount of like I feel like there's this strange thing in maybe the way the film's being critiqued that Hidatora is is a victim and I just don't see that as a reading of the movie at least in terms of his relationship to what happens to him and his kingdom once he relinquishes power and has to come face to face with the like the horror he's put upon like the younger generation of people, you know, it, it, it's one of the most, let's say topical things about a film that I think will always be topical is like the older generation having to transfer power and deal with the implications of the mistakes they've made. Mm, and to recognize that the mistakes they've made are mistakes. However, they meant well by it. I think that's one of those things that's, I, and it kind of comes into what I was just saying about how Hidetora has created this world in which love is no longer relevant mm -hmm. because he may have tried to do it in order for his family to survive or to have power but he's also created the kind of world in which the sort of destruction and suffering that he experiences becomes possible right yeah. and only that in a weird way there's um this there's also something that i that i sort of wonder about from a from a let's say like a cultural or or and a let's say a cultural level with this film in the decision to cast um, the, the actor that plays the fool 
in the role um, because, as I understand it, it's the uh, Peter is a is a kind of like a character that as a as the actor is is a um, was was I reading this was sort of a drag queen in Japan and kind of like played both played roles in in kind of a little bit of a cabaret character and so to have this character Peter being the sort of drag queen character there to comment on the buffoonery and the fumbling of an old man I found like very very compelling it's like there are a number of people in the mm. film who I feel are truth tellers and the fool as truth teller in Shakespeare is such an important thing but I wonder if there's any cultural implication to that idea of, of casting this specific actor to kind of spend the film going after the old man oh culturally specific um I, I don't know how much is implied here but I I do know that to some extent there may be an implied sexual relationship in the or a past relationship in between the the fool and the the king because mm -hmm. it was it was known as a, a thing to bring a young boy with you to battle if you were a warlord uh. where women were not with you not that there were no female warriors but generally speaking battlefields were men's business and it and homosexuality was not a problem in in mm. Sengoku Japan so I, I don't think it's ever foregrounded by the film, but I think there is some kind of special relationship between them, which is not necessarily sexual, not necessarily familial, but it does seem almost closer in some ways than the relationship that Hidetora has to his sons. And it's possibly because of the effeminacy of Kyoami there. Hmm. Yeah, I would never have... I guess it's not for... As you said, it's not clear in the film, but I was not aware of that at all, but it adds a whole other layer. And... Well, he Kiyom also saves his life early on in the film, which is like one of the events that really kind of also begins to alienate him from. Say that again. Taro. Well, he, when he saves the fool's life. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the first events that really begins to alienate him from his um, eldest son. Um, I want to very quickly touch on the role of um, uh. Kurugani, the the general, the the military commander, because one of the things that comes up in the Stuart Galbraith book about Mufune and uh, Kurosawa hmm. is the idea that if Mufune were in the film but he weren't to play Hidetora, he would be a really great Kurugane. And I thought that was really interesting because Kurugane is in some ways the most sort of like assured patriarchal figure in the film in that like you have Hidetora wandering around, not sure what to do. Mm -hmm. And you have um, the middle son who is kind of a, in some ways a disaster in terms of how he's managing everything in his life. And Kurogane is this character who can just be like, what are you doing? You're mm -hmm. making mistakes. Like your, your wife is manipulating you. He has the courage and the, the gall to stand up to it. And I think it's, he has a little bit of that Mifune energy, but I, I just wanted to bring it up in terms of like thinking about what that character represents and why Mifune would have been a, a great choice for it. To me, it, it really reads as just the, the kind of like the kind of, for lack of a better word, like clear, strong masculinity of that character and the way he behaves in the context of the movie. I thought it was an interesting kind of uh, look at that because I don't know where, I, I wonder where else he would fit. George, do you have any thoughts on where he could be in the movie? I'd love to see him as Hidetora. Hmm. You mean Mifune? Yes. 
Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, no. I mean, he clearly... How old would he have been at this time? So Kurosawa was 75, I believe? He was probably 65. He was about 10 years younger. So he was 10 years younger than him. Yeah. So he could have definitely pulled it off, of course. And obviously, he would have done an incredible job. I mean, it would have just been amazing to see him, I think, in any one of those kind of roles because it's just Mufune. <laughs> yeah, it's Mufune. You <laughs> and can't do makes, any better. And he makes every movie he's in just that much better. Absolutely. I wonder a little bit if his, like post his sort of like ironic energy would not fit in this film this film feels so so serious to me and i do think that like there's probably some cultural stuff that you know f for us falls under the radar because i know that for example one of the warlords in the film is played by a famous japanese comedian which i didn't know until i read a little bit more about it but the movie doesn't have in my mind much of a sense of humor it sort of works on a higher level than that and it would have been interesting to see where mifune would have stood i don't know i didn't i don't get a lot of laughs out of the movie so to speak <laughs> yes I, I think it's true there isn't much of a sense of humor that Mifune was capable of of acting quite seriously as well. I, I think of him in in Throne of Blood, for instance, as not mm. having as much of a sense of humor. He he has his very characteristic way of of presenting himself, which you're right could have worked very well as as Kurogane, because Kurogane has this kind of stability about him that when the whole world is thrown into chaos, he is one of the characters who sticks to the old values and never questions it. I'm not sure that makes him a good character, that he's a useful character in the film. I, I you know, I, I always thought that Tatsuya Nakadai does such a great job as Hidetora, and considering especially how young he was when he played mm -hmm. that role, that I just, even though I love Mifune as well, I, I'm not sure I could imagine Mifune in the role. How old was he when he played the, played the role? I think he was 31. What? Uh, Nakadai, he was born in 19, so he was 50. When was he, he played the role, he's I think. 50 years old. Oh, yes, 32. That's right. He was born uh, in 32. Yeah, yeah, he was 50. He was, yes, still young. Right. But still it feels young a much him, younger. Yeah. It feels like a much older person's kind of part, you know? Yeah. But Definitely. I think it requires a lot of energy to play Leah. It's the old thing you mentioned earlier that you need to be old to play Leah, but you need to be young enough to have the energy to play Leah. Right, yeah. <laughs> There yeah, is that the, weird uh, balance. There, there is that one funny scene though where the fool says something about not like oh yeah maybe you should just jump and he jumps. Mm. I got I got I got a bit of a chuckle. Oh yeah, that, <laughs> that is. And <laughs> also because good, when he jumps, he feels like he falls forty five feet. It, it yes. feels like it's a very yeah that's true. And there's something funny to the fool, but you know it isn't it isn't to me quite like the fool in Shakespeare where. Maybe it's because when the in the way that the fool interacts with the audience in a Shakespeare play, you don't mm -hmm. quite have that. You know, you don't have like mm -hmm. direct address in this film. It wouldn't. It would. It wouldn't work. You know. Uh, so instead, yeah. he's he's leveling critiques at Hidatora and the people around him. There's no mm -hmm. sort of. There's no stand-in for the audience to to gravitate to. But in then this King Lear's fool is is not very funny either. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's a very but tragic character. He's a strange fool, the fool in King Lear, and I, I think that Kyoami's character is not as wise, perhaps, but he has a similar kind of energy about him that's that's that works for the film as it is. He's definitely the truth teller, as you were saying earlier, just as the fool is the truth teller in Lear. And you're right, that scene is very funny. I I always think of that as the analogue to Gloucester's failed suicide on Dover Cliff. Mm. And I think it's amazing because... Uh, there are other King Lear adaptations, and most of the time that Dover Cliff scene fails because 
because there's something very specific about it being played on a bare stage that the right. audience is not normally aware of whether they actually are on top of a cliff or not if you're looking at a bare stage because we're used to having our imaginations told that this is a cliff and just to imagine that the characters are actually on a cliff. But in cinema, as you were saying, there's this kind of realism that you expect and you expect the filmmakers to be honest. So there's um, there's Kozintsev's Coral Lear, very famously, he just decided not to do the Dover Cliff scene at all because he didn't think that he could do it on on film but mm. here i think kurosawa does an excellent job because he uses the same kind of he transfers that meta theatricality to meta cinema and he doesn't let you know how tall that wall is so there's that wow. there's that sort of um almost grotesque sense of humor going on there where you don't know maybe he has committed suicide and and you know it's not until you go to the bottom and even then you don't actually know how far he has fallen so yeah. that's that's one of the things that's always astounded me about that scene it's funny but it's also really profound to me i think that brings up an interesting point when you think about those moments and the moments of the sort of wandering with the fool and Lear. that and it could be that this is you know a clear sort of line in this line, way of thinking about theater history. But I thought a little bit about Godot while watching this, like these two characters in an unknown landscape, not really sure where to go or what to say or who to talk to, but they're waiting. I don't know if they're waiting for something, but they're waiting for things to change. Right. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it felt a little more like absurdism watching it this time. Maybe it was watching it at home on a Monday afternoon. It was a very strange experience. But During like, a pandemic. During a pandemic, yeah. This feeling of like, well, we might as well tackle one of the greatest movies of all time. You know, this kind, but this feeling of like, it felt more absurd to me than it did the original time. Yeah. It felt less tragic mm. and more absurd. I mean, a lot of that absurdity is already in Lear itself, though, too. Yeah. Yes. Like reason it's been and compared madness. with that endgame in the past as well, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's already kind of like baked in the cake so to speak baked mm. <laughs> in the cake of it that's the, funny the cake of king lear's madness what was um, i gonna say oh yeah all this talk about comedy and shakespeare makes me like damn i would have really loved to see kurosawa like adapt like a shakespearean comedy now right like, like comedy of errors like yeah something like that i mean i wonder what that would have looked like it's hard to imagine it's hard <laughs> to know, imagine it's really yeah, hard to, to imagine, imagine um what do we make of the uh, the one character I think I want to get to before we wrap up is the Surumaru character, the blind yes. sibling mm. to Suye, because it, at least for me, and I'd be curious to see what you guys think, blind characters in tragedies are remarkably potent images to me, especially in the way that we think about the people that are left to tell the story after the the event happens. And the and one of the most the most tragic image to me in the film is Surumaro alone on that cliff with no guidance and no it just really blew my mind and, and, and maybe was the thing that made me feel the any kind of catharsis was or not even catharsis but a kind of pity was seeing Surumaro stuck on that cliff by himself at the end of the film. Yeah. I mean the dropping of that Buddhist scroll is like such a powerful image. Yeah, and it inspires a kind of silence in the end of the film. We don't, we don't know what we've. In a weird way, it makes me wonder. Like, does it ask? Does it suggest? Like, do we understand what we've really seen in the end of this film? And it makes me think a little bit about the end of uh, an interesting parallel at the end of the film Dogville, when all that's left is a barking dog to tell the story of of what's happened before. Like this tragic sort of character who's left to tell the story. This there's a kind of. Um strangeness about it as well because if we think of Tsurumaru as the 
the remainder, the person left to tell the story, it's also hard to imagine he's got anyone to tell the story to. Yeah. He's very alone in that scene. And there's that, the way that he's just tapping the stick against the edge of the edge of the castle wall and that there's no guidance anymore, it feels like. that It's not that the path is no longer there, it's that it's not obvious anymore. And he doesn't have the scroll, the spiritual guidance either. And I, I, you were talking earlier about how this film thinks about the relationship between humans and gods, I guess, and whether there is any anything at the end. That that ending really does divide an audience, I think, on exactly how you understand the relationship of these characters to some kind of higher power. Yeah, I'd like, I mean, again, it could be read in multiplicity of ways, but I did initially think about it as, oh, this is perhaps one of the only moments in the film where it gestures towards a kind of redemption or at least a certain kind of, let's say, potential for wisdom or transcendence in regards to the events that have just unfolded. Huh. I read it as almost the opposite. I think it's just an absolute empty kind of, not empty in terms of meaning, but in terms of like, it's almost feels like the end of the world, you know, this idea of like, it's all over. And, you know, one of the things, Jessica, that you brought up is the idea that this film feels as though it takes place in some kind of vacuum. There's no one else around. It seems as though these are Hida Torah's lands. No one else is on them. There's like, there's mentions of like peasants and things like that, but we never see them. And so to end on this image of a blind person stuck, as you said, on the side of a castle feels as though like, yes, there's, there's a story to be told here, but there's no one to hear the story because we've all led ourselves. There's no one to love. There's no, everyone's alone because there's no love left in the world because of this like kind of chaotic patriarchal mistake (laughs) that's been made in the, in the, in the course of history. And you think that that might have something to do with the kind of post-nuclear filmmaking that Kurosawa was engaged with, do you think? I suppose. uh, I feel as though we are left at the end of the movie, like bereft of a, of a meaning, like, and the, the, I, not a meaning in that, like, I think that there's, this is what complicates this film to me. And I'd be curious to see what you guys think, but you know, we, we, there's no one in the film that we 100, we can empathize with everyone. We can also see that we can empathize with everyone. We can also be sort of disgusted by everyone. Surumaro to me is one of the few sympathetic characters in the film. Yet at the end, there's no one left to guide him to where there's a possibility for redemption or hope or meaning or love. Hmm. I always, I was always struck by what Kurosawa himself said about the ending of the film. That, and I'll quote it actually because I have it here. He said, "What I wanted to say in the last scene is that we should stop thinking that we can count on God or Buddha. We should make an effort to accept responsibility for our own lives." Mm. And I think that that is quite key. That everyone mm. always trying to blame each other for something that happened, or to blame a higher power, say Kyoami at the end, thinking that the gods just treat human beings as insects. But in reality, all of the tragedy and suffering that's happened in the film has been caused by humans themselves. 
by the structures they've created, whether that's patriarchy or warfare or bloodshed, all of those sorts of things. It's this sort of cycle of revenge that's entirely human. And that comes back to that juxtaposition between nature and humankind that I was I was talking about at the beginning, mm. that you have there Sudamara standing in a ruined castle, the ruins of a kind of civilization, having just dropped the scroll of the, the merciful Buddha and not with with no obvious path for himself, but with some kind of, there's, there's a sort of spiritual transcendence there for me that it's not necessarily that he has nowhere to go, but that the future is free for him because everything that has made the, the past bad has, has passed away in some ways, and he still holds the scars of his suffering, the fact that he can't see at all. But it doesn't mean that he has no future, I think. Yeah. It's also the, the very mm. powerful, like, traditional symbol, right, of the, that the loss of literal outward vision gives inward vision. Mm. Or wisdom, um, maybe? Yeah, well, yes, mm. yeah. Like an ability to see other things that would otherwise not one would not be able to see. Well, Gloucester, of course, in King Lear is blinded, and he says, "I stumbled when yeah. I saw." Right. Yeah. And Cavell also that, that early on in that essay talks about like the significance of blindness and of sight mm. um, in Lear, obviously. So I think like Kurosawa is definitely clearly picking up on that and mm. using it as. A symbol. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had no idea that he himself commented on the ending in that really kind of like powerful direct way. Yes, I, so I don't think that the director necessarily has the last word on oh, the interpretation, but I, I like that because actually I think mm. of, similarly of King Lear, that there is something about, well, actually it's remarkable how little Christian references there are in King Lear, even for Shakespeare, who doesn't mention very much about God for a man writing in his time. He makes it quite a pagan play. So it's despite the fact that there are characters who are always saying, you know, oh, the gods, you, you justices above, or, or Gloucester saying that the, the gods, they, they kill us for our sport. But there's no evidence ever that there is any kind of divine intervention going on. And I think that Kurosawa picks up on that incredibly well in that ending. Yeah, there's, I'm looking here at this, the, the script, which is obviously a translation, and I don't think it, it plays, it's translated quite like this in the film, if I recall correctly. I don't know if it's a, how they worked with it, but Tango has these lines at the end about how uh, this, the, the evil of human beings, the stupidity of the sinful characters who believe their, their survival depends on killing others repeated again and again throughout all mm -hmm. time. And I think it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition of Koyami being like, why is this happening? Why is this, why is this being allowed to happen? And someone like Tango being like, this is just what happens. Mm. This is just what gets repeated time and time again. The, uh, the human being seeks sorrow, not happiness, and prefers suffering to peace, which I think is a really interesting kind of two ideas that this film ends on and make it makes the ending so powerful is we're we're not told what to think of course right it mm. it's a it's a really interesting question of of what one believes i think it sort of makes you confront why why we all makes one wa listen watching the film confront their own feelings towards suffering in a mm. in a pretty powerful way well on that light note. On that, yeah, this was a really, <laughs> really chill way what to What a great to place to end. And now, everyone, let's have drinks in the lounge. Oh, there's the no way we could have ended any commentary on this <laughs> film any other way. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing, though, about that Kurosawa quote, though, is that it suggests that 
Jessica Jessica and I are, are correct about the ending and Liam is wrong. So that's what I really <laughs> want to stress. Oh, I wasn't listening. Yeah, I was were, reading the uh, script to Ron, so I don't know what you're... <laughs> Now there was some summing it up. No, there's something I I, I I appreciate that reading because it makes me feel a little bit about a bit a bit little bit better about like this might sound ridiculous, but Kurosawa as a person because it's it would be nice to think that when it like one of his great sort of masterworks, one of the, you know, five or six really important pieces of cinema has a hopeful ending as opposed to just being, you know, I think that he gets at something that a lot of other directors don't. So many films that have this kind of philosophical idea at them basically conclude with the idea that like, well, we're all alone and the world is terrible, you know, and I, and I don't, I think the fact that there's the ability to see this both ways makes it a, a much more powerful Film. Well, and yeah, and I do think that it is a commentary in some ways on the post-nuclear age. That that of course Japan was devastated by the Second World War, and Kurosawa himself lived through that that absolute suffering. I think that they experienced for whatever reason, and they had to rebuild. So he's gone through the the very worst parts of what human violence can mm. do. I think to a to a society. And he knows that at the end of it is not just giving up. Life does go on. It's also interesting to juxtapose that with when you read about his early life and surviving the earthquakes and, you know, that kind of being a formative event in his life in terms of as someone who lived through the calamities of the of the century he did the constant need for Japanese society to rebuild itself or pockets of Japanese society rebuild itself. Um and I wonder if your reading of the fact that this feels like it's it's happening in such a vacuum is is an interesting way to 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 think about the idea of of how people regroup and rebuild in terms of like we are all we're alone in our suffering and yet like we have to go out into the world to you know it's interesting that Sobaru leaves and kind of is is the one I mean, he passes away, but is the kind of hopeful character until he passes away in the film because he hasn't stayed in the kingdom. Mm. Yes, that he's gone out of the, the society that he was in and he brings in something fresh. That's that's a possibility, yeah. I mean, of course, the, there's also the possibility that it gives a it gives a feeling of how suffering can be quite timeless. I don't I don't subscribe to universality but it's true that suffering that all in all ages is quite timeless and that you mentioned that bit in the battle where that kind of Mahler-esque soundtrack happens and you just have these images of unnaturally red blood everywhere lots mm -hmm. of dead bodies and it's not clear where those dead bodies are from it could be from the earthquake it could be from the bombings it could be from the film it, it's there's there are moments of the film that seem to be about violence generally to me not just about violence in, in that particular society he's created. Um, we could go on forever. Yes. I don't want to keep, Jessica, we don't want to keep you forever. I do think it's interesting how, and very quickly, of course, then I, then I go into something and else. Then you, yeah. that Here's another there's, really There's very point. few shots of dead bodies in the film that don't also show people dying. Mm. Like, he doesn't just show you a, a dead, a three bodies with arrows in them. He shows someone slowly dying of an arrow wound. And I think that that's very specific when we think about like the idea of where there's hope or there's not hope in this film. Like there's, there's humanity present in every moment. And I think that that's, that's kind of an interesting, mm. interesting read of all of this. Uh, do you have any, we're going to, I think we'll wrap it up there. Do you have any projects or anything you want to tell us about where we can, folks can find your work 
after this very enriching discussion? Um, well, I, I'm not working on none now, uh, but mm. I am working on Japanese translation and what it can tell us about about our world and about Shakespeare, of course. So I'll be working at the University of Birmingham for a few years, especially in collaboration with the University of Waseda in Tokyo. So I'll be doing various things related to Shakespeare and translation, and you'll be able to find me around. Very cool. Awesome, thank yeah. you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank it, you, it Jessica. Great. It was amazing. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll do it again. There's the, we'll probably find more excuses to talk about Shakespeare in the future. I hope so. I hope so. Um, please, uh, if you haven't, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And if we have a Patreon, so if if you out there in the world listening want to give us three dollars a month to get more of this this banter, we'd love to <laughs> we'd love to take your money. What a, what a banter is one mark. way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Banter. Yeah, it's one thing. Um, I'm Liam Billing. I was Liam Billingham. I was George Fragopoulos. I was Jessica Chiba. And this was Uberbusters. Uber yeah! Oh, yeah! She did it! She did it! It's great. She's All part right. of the band. <laughs> She's in the band now. You have to say it to be the band. Jessica, thank you. 